Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, one of the biggest TV shows ever has been turned into a trashy reality game show. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. One of my favorite shows returned this week, and I'm really digging a new murder mystery show on Disney+. Plus. It's a monstrous week of the movies, and there's a monstrous new show on TV I want to discuss. Plus, after getting on board with the show in a big way in 2020, I haven't gone back to it for three years. Until now. But first, one of the best shows of the last decade came back for its fifth season this week, and I was excited about it. It's Fargo. We gotta run the check, make sure you're not psychopaths or, you know, socialists. That last one's a joke. Find her and don't make a mess of this. All right, are you done? She's a wolf in sheep's clothing, that one. I am so sorry for biting you, boys. It's just if you knew the week I'm having. <laughs> what now? I'm called in the cavalry. Now it's war. I'm a winner! The things that happen, happen. Who lives, who dies. This game is over. Fargo is on FX on Tuesday nights. They started with two episodes this past week, and they'll do one episode a week for 10 episodes. It's an anthology series, which simply means that each season is its own thing. There may be some small tangential connections between seasons, but you don't have to watch the first four seasons to jump into season five. What you might want to watch, though, is a bunch of Coen Brothers movies, because Fargo the show is based on or inspired by Fargo the movie. And the first season had one very direct connection to the show, involving a certain case of money buried in the snow by Steve Buscemi. Like the movie, the show is about clever cops and stupid criminals and the cheery folk of the American Midwest and how the evil of the world can shatter their peace and quiet. The first two seasons were great. The third season was good. And season four mostly sucked. Each season is also set in a different time period. The movie set in the 80s. Season one, the 2000s. Season two went back to the 70s. And season three up to 2010. Season four back to 1950. So it's been bad. Bouncing all around, season five is decidedly current. It's set in 2019 to start, and it lets us know right up front that it is about modern times. It opens with a brawl at a school board meeting, and there's a lot of talk about modern society and politics and the like. And the brawl, at the, at the brawl, we meet um, one of the main characters, this woman, Dot. She's played by Juno Temple, who was on Ted Lasso. She's a mom. She's on the library fundraising committee. And in the melee at the meeting, she accidentally tasers a cop and ends up getting arrested. We soon meet her family. There's her husband, Wayne, who's a meek and mild Kia dealership owner. They have a middle of school aged daughter named Scotty. And there's his mom, Lorraine, played by Jennifer Jason Lee. She's very rich, very tough. She is a lawyer who's always around. He's played by Dave Foley. So they sort of have a similar family dynamic as William H. Macy's uh, Lundergaard family in the movie. But but their story is quite different, and that's kind of the fun of the show. There are all these situations that are reminiscent of things in Coen Brothers movies, but, uh, you know, in service of these new different stories. Like at one point in the first episode, there's a home invasion that starts almost shot for shot like the one in the movie Fargo, but the one in the show Fargo quickly takes its own turn in a different direction. The other main character we follow, although he isn't really introduced until episode two, is Roy Tillman, a sheriff in a rural North Dakota county. He's played by John Hamm, and he's got 
got a history of some sort with Dot, who's in small town Minnesota. And after she gets arrested, her fingerprints are in the system and Sheriff Tillman kind of has a lead on her. And we should say that this Sheriff Tillman is a bad man, a very bad man, despite being sheriff. The first monologue he gives spells it out. Um, he's got this moron son who's also cruel, and he's a deputy of the sheriff. He's played by Steve from Stranger Things. There are also some other cops, good cops, played by Richa Murjani and Lamorne Morris from New Girl. And there's some more criminals, including a very scary guy, which is kind of part and parcel for a lot of Coen Brothers movies. And also with this show, there's just been some real psychos in the history of both. And they've got a guy this season that's uh, kind of scary like that. And uh, I was talking about Dave Foley before. Now, of course, the show does the exaggerated Minnesota accent, but it's even more pronounced than the movie it seems but when Dave Foley does it it's kind of a little hard to buy because we've seen him do a lot of weird voices and kids in the hall sketches so you kind of just think he's in a skit or something it was a little odd but I'm sure I'll get used to it gotta say though through two episodes it's been a lot of fun it's very entertaining funny also tense and thrilling at times there's a lot of surprises and again just I just love all the cohen stuff. I'm glad it's back on track after season four, which kind of drove off a cliff and becoming a caricature of itself. But if you like any of the other seasons of Fargo or the movie, you should definitely check out season five. They'll probably rerun those first two episodes before the next episode on Tuesday. And I would say get on board. I'm glad to have uh, Fargo back on FX. All right. And moving from the small screen to the big screen, we've got five new movies out this week. We had four last week, five this week. Three of them debuted Midweek. Now, last week I pointed to them opening on Tuesday, but the release date was actually Wednesday, November 22nd. I just got my dates mixed up. Although they maybe they played Tuesday night. I don't know. Whatever. They came out midweek ahead of U.S. Thanksgiving. First on the list, the latest cartoon from Disney. It's Wish. Last night, I made a wish on a star. <gasps> and the star answered. This Thanksgiving, the star with such power, I can do anything. I have to stop him. Be careful. Knowing what I know now. What you wish for. It's a dead end. With unsanded mahogany. Ah! Good find. My butt found it. Disney's Wish. Rated PG. Only in theaters November 22nd. Wish is a musical comedy that brings us to the magical kingdom of Rosas. Or Rosas. I don't know. Where young Asha makes a wish so powerful that it is answered by a cosmic force. A little ball, a cute little ball of boundless energy called Star. And together, Asha and Star confront a most formidable foe. The ruler of Rosas, King Magnifico, to save her community and prove that when the will of one courageous human connects with the magic of the stars, wondrous things can happen. Good voice cast, Chris Pine, Alan Tudyk, Victor Garber, and in the role of Asha is Ariana DeBose, who was in West Side Story. Do you Oscar winner for West Side Story. Yep. Yeah? Oscar oh, yeah. winner? Okay. So it sounds good. Looks good. Maybe not so good. 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. If I were to change my name, it might be to King Magnifico. <laughs> King Magnifico. I, th I think I would like people to call me that. <laughs> Next up, director Ridley Scott teams up again with Joaquin Phoenix in Napoleon. Napoleon Bonaparte, the greatest leader in the history of the world. You are just a brute. He's vain, but he's popular. This vermin has routed Europe. You want to be great. I'm not built like other men. But I will win by fire. 
Napoleon, rated R, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. So Phoenix, of course, was in Scott's Gladiator some 20 plus years ago, playing an egomaniac ruler. And here he is again in Napoleon, described as a spectacle-filled action epic that details the checkered rise and fall of the iconic French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, played by Phoenix. The film captures Napoleon's relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his one true love, Josephine, showcasing his visionary military and political tactics against some of the most dynamic practical battle sequences ever filmed. Its review score is okay, 62%. I've heard it's funnier than you would expect in a good way. And this is interesting. Many are complaining that the runtime at 2 hours 38 minutes is too short. Who's many? Just Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese? No, it's too short, man. Some of the critics are saying it's <laughs> it, it, it's not enough. There's just too much of a good story that they've had to cut too much stuff out of it, I guess. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah so that's interesting. Still sort of feels like homework. I don't think I'm getting to the theater for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe okay. once it's on video. Next on the list, a weird-looking movie called Saltburn. I'm glad you're here, mate. I'm sorry that everything's so old-fashioned. This place, it's not for you. Things are so precarious and lonely. No, no, go on. Well, well, well. I gave you what you wanted! I don't think I'll ever go home again. Saltburn, rated R, Friday. Saltburn is from Academy Award-winning filmmaker Ed Emerald Fennell, who won for Best Original Screenplay in 2021 for Promising Young Woman, starring Carrie Mulligan. Jeff, memory serves as a Carrie Mulligan you like? I like Carrie Mulligan a lot. Actually, that movie was very good, yeah? too. Yeah? Okay. So this one is described as a beautifully wicked tale of privilege and desire, struggling to find his place at Oxford University. Student Oliver Quick, played by Barry Cogan, finds himself drawn into the world of the charming and aristocratic Felix Catton, who invites invites him to Saltburn, his eccentric family's sprawling estate for a summer never to be forgotten. Rosamund Pike, by the way, is in the supporting cast. That's worth noting. And it has a decent review score, 71%. One quote I saw was, a gothic thriller dusted with candy pop glitter. Looks intriguing. Like, when you watch the trailer, it's the kind of movie that grabs your attention for sure because it looks kind of wacky. And these next two movies don't date. So those three started on Wednesday. These next two movies don't debut until Friday, November. November 24th, and this first one is only in theaters for a limited time because it launches on Netflix in two weeks. Pretty common trend for Netflix this fall because we had The Killer a little while ago. There's another movie that debuts this weekend in a limited limited release called Maestro. That one stars Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan. Yeah. It arrives on Netflix on December 20th. But right now, let's focus on Leave the World Behind. So sorry to bother you. You must be Amanda. Why did you come here? In my line of work, you have to understand the patterns that govern the world. They can help you see the future. And I knew something was coming. I don't understand. What do you mean? We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. The truth is much scarier. What is the truth? This looks wild. From director Sam Esmail, the guy behind Mr. Robot, A Family's Vacation, the family played by Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke, 
is upended when two strangers, Mahershala Ali and Mihala, arrive at night seeking refuge from a cyber attack that grows more terrifying by the minute, forcing everyone to come to terms with their places in a collapsing world. Kevin Bacon is in it, too. It, it's got a good score, 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think this looks cool, so I can't wait to see that. So again, new in theaters this weekend, and then it debuts on Netflix in a couple of weeks on December 8th. And one more movie to tell you about. This one's starring Nicolas Cage. We'll do that next. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes, telling you what's new at the movies this week. Four of five have been revealed. Now let's tell you about the fifth one. Nicolas Cage stars in Dream Scenario. Have you been dreaming about me? How does it feel to go viral? I wish I was the one people were dreaming about. Why me? Uh, I don't know. I'm special, I guess. So I'm finally cool, huh? <laughs> You're playing with fire here. Fame can come with some less desirable side effects. You should be prepared for that. Hapless family man Paul Matthews, played by Nicolas Cage, finds his life turned upside down when millions of strangers suddenly start seeing him in their dreams. But when his nighttime appearances take a nightmarish turn, Paul is forced to navigate his newfound stardom in this wickedly entertaining comedy. So that's the synopsis and the critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes reads, Come to Dream Scenario for career highlight work from Nicolas Cage and leave mulling over everything it has to say about pop culture's fickle whims. It's at 92%, so that one looks like another winner. So mixed bag of movies this week. And if you don't want to go to the movies, you just want to stay home, well, new on Apple TV Plus this weekend. Actually, that was it was last weekend it debuted. The debut of a 10-episode series that is getting great reviews so far. Everything you don't want to believe exists. Holy if you want to save millions of lives. We can use some help. Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. So again, debuted this past weekend with two episodes. And then the third episode aired on Wednesday. I've seen two of the first three. So it takes place after the revelation that monsters are real. And it's about two siblings who follow, follow their father's footsteps to uncover the family connection to the secretive organization known as Monarch. So that's the organization that keeps popping up in all these movies, Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters, Kong Skull Island, and of course Godzilla versus King Kong or Kong versus Godzilla or whatever it was called. It doesn't matter. That's the organization. They've been monitoring these monsters for who knows how long. They've always been mysterious. And in this mysterious, they remain. Are they good? Are they bad? Both? What are they hiding? What are they after? And who is the father they're trying to find? It's at 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, heralded for jumping into this big, bombastic world of monsters and paring it down to a surprisingly human level. Like, there are still monsters, but so far not too many, and not as gigantic as Godzilla or Kong. And that's okay, because it's way better than I thought it would be. I was just hoping it would be kind of fun, see some monsters go smashy-smashy. But it's quite serious, and so far it's a really compelling mystery. The story is told in a variety 
of flashbacks in the present with the siblings and at various points in the past involving John Goodman's character in Kong Skull Island, Bill Randa, that's his name, and we go back even further than the 70s. Uh, that was portrayed in Skull Island. Well, this takes us back to the 50s, and we meet a young Randa. We also meet a character played in the past by Wyatt Russell and in the present by Wyatt's dad, Kurt Russell. So that's a pretty neat bit of casting. And uh, I've only seen the first ep- two episodes, like I said. Three of them are out now, and I'm really enjoying this. So this is way more uh, in- entertaining than I anticipated. Not that, not that dumb is bad, but like yeah. this is smart. That's awesome. I, w- I really want to see this. Of all the things on my list I do want to watch that I may never get around to, this is at the top of that list. Because I actually like all those movies, too, except I think, weirdly enough, maybe that first Godzilla movie is not is the worst of all those movies. But uh, that, i got to watch Kong Skull Island again, too, because I think that's the best one. But I haven't seen it in a while. I loved it. And there's also a Skull Island cartoon on Netflix, oh. which I've been meaning to check out. Hmm. I think that came out over the summer. And I uh, wasn't sure if I cared for the animation style. I don't know. But I didn't realize it was canon, so maybe I oh, have yeah. to check it out so I can get up on the MonsterVerse. In the meantime, up next, the huge TV show that's now a trashy reality game show. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. Just forgot to mention about Monarch, Legacy of Monsters, that it looks amazing. The visuals are spectacular. What they can do when they do it right, like... TV shows look as good as movies. Those movies had amazing visual effects, and those same visual effects are on display in the television show. So you will not be disappointed by the visuals in Monarch. Nor will you be disappointed, I think, at least with the visuals, in something that I teed up a couple of weeks ago. And now I have a spoiler-free review for Squid Game The Challenge, debuted Wednesday, November 22nd. And I will explain how they're rolling it out in a moment. But to recap, Squid Game is the South Korean show that pitted 456 people against each other in a variety of life-or-death games. This is a fictional series, by the way. So life-or-death games, where one person emerges the winner to claim the prize of 45.6 billion won, or the equivalent of 39 million U.S., and it caught the attention of pretty much the whole world and is now the biggest show in Netflix's history. So now they've turned it into a reality game show. Attention players, you will now compete for our biggest cash prize in reality show history. You have got to be kidding me. Oh my god. 4.56 million dollars. People do a whole lot worse for a whole lot less. So 456 players, $4.56 million on the line. So that makes this pretty much the biggest reality show prize ever. And it's one of the most ambitious, if not the most ambitious, I've ever seen for a reality show. Ten episodes in total. The first five episodes are available now on Netflix. Then four more on November 9th, or 29th, pardon me. And the final episode airs on December 6th which is frustrating because I've seen the first eight episodes and I have been eagerly awaiting November 22nd for over a week, 
only to discover on November 22nd that they're doing this staggered rollout. So now I have to wait until December 6th to find out what happens. As I mentioned, spoiler-free review, but I can tell you that they have painstakingly recreated the sets to look just like the TV show. You'd think you're on the same set. It's nuts. Players from around the world, so it's an international cast, and I won't tell you which games from the series are recreated for the game show, Although the games they do recreate are shockingly good and faithful recreations, minus the killing, of course, and the new games are really exciting, too. I do have some gripes, like some of the games and the ways that people are eliminated is just not fair. I can't remember every game in the series, the fictional series, but there are some instances in this one where people go home when they had nothing to do with getting booted, just random chance, or... Like there are certain situations where they're playing part, they have to agree. They have to come to a consensus with their playing partner. And if their playing partner is stubborn and they don't come to a consensus, they're both out. So that was, that made me angry to say the least. Like at least on Survivor or The Amazing Race, you've got a shot. Like, yeah, your fate might be in other people's hands sometimes, or you might just get a bad cab driver on The Amazing Race, but you still have a fighting chance. And for a lot of the contestants in this show, they had no chance. So that, that sucks. And it's also kind of slow at times. Like there's a lot of downtime between the games and it often feels like an episode of Big Brother where it's just people sitting around in a confined place, just scheming or talking random nonsense. And I know that's what happens in Survivor as well, but they're in a tropical setting and I don't know, it's more strategy and a lot of this is just kind of boring. So, and then they get pulled into an insane game. So that's why, hence the Big Brother comparison. Uh, whereas the Survivor games are insane too, but Big Brother is just, they got wacky games. So I wonder if this could have been eight instead of 10 episodes. Also, don't get attached to anyone. I mean, 456 people and only one winner, but the show does a good job of getting you attached to people. It's impossible not to get attached, but there were a couple of contestant losses that were just gut-wrenching. Also, gut-wrenching at times is the way the show really breaks down its contestants emotionally. Like, this is a tough game. And, by the way, and I've talked about this before, but if the phrase, let's go, annoys you, I would suggest you turn the show into a drinking game. Every time you hear, let's go, take a shot or a sip, you will sleep well that night, let me tell you. I wish I had kept count. There are some criticisms on how the game misses the anti-capitalist point of the drama series. Well, okay, maybe, but like, who cares? This is a game show. <laughs> I don't care if they fully recreate the show and its themes. They've taken the basic structure and the games and found a way to do this, and I think that's good enough for me. You still get to see people turn on each other instantly. But there are some genuine and even heartwarming ways where people come together to help each other out and are prepared to sacrifice themselves if it comes to that. And I was not expecting to see that in this show. I must point out, this is at 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. USA Today writes, Surprise, the Squid Game reality show is morally despicable and really boring. No one asked for this. No one wanted this. And yet... Here it is. And there's also some drama for the producers because some contestants are threatening a lawsuit, citing stuff like hypothermia, negligence, and rigging the games. The game was filmed at Cardington Studios, which is a former Royal Air Force base in England, and that they were filming during a cold snap. 
So Netflix did confirm that three of 456 players required medical attention, and the show then faced an independent safety inspection after those medical incidents on set. So not a, a production without its problems. But bottom line for me, Squid Game, the series, is one of the coolest shows I've ever watched. Squid Game, the challenge... It can't compare, obviously. It can't hold a candle. Even as a reality show, it's not the best I've ever seen. But it's big. It's ambitious. The games are great. And I'm curious to know who wins. And I applaud them for managing to make this translation to take to adapt the show and turn it into a game. It should be shorter, I think. Ten episodes is probably too much. But I did get hooked on it immediately. It's getting more bad reviews than good. I'm going to stay on the good side for now. We'll see if they stick the landing. So five episodes out now, four on November 29th, final episode December 6th, Squid Game, The Challenge on Netflix. That's cool. I'm going to have to maybe check that out, especially if a bunch of them are out already. Why not check that out this weekend? Because I really like Squid Game. Squid Game. Squid Game. Ooh, there's a show that might happen at some point. <laughs> I like uh, Squid Game, the original show, a lot too. Yeah, so. <laughs> what would Skid Game be about? Do we even want to know? No. <laughs> All right. I started watching a new murder mystery show on Disney Plus this week. It's called A Murder at the End of the World. I'm here on Andy Ronson's behalf to invite you to your retreat. Your cell phone, please. This is like half my brain. Welcome. It's so exciting to see you all here. You know him? A long time ago. Everyone I've invited here has something extraordinary to offer the group. Did you know LA Times called her? Gen Z Sherlock Holmes. We don't know who did this. We don't know why. And we don't know if they are done. You're afraid. Terrified. A Murder at the End of the World is on Hulu in the U.S. on Disney Plus here in Canada. It's a seven to eight episode miniseries. Each episode has been just over an hour long, at least each of the first two that I've seen. There have been three so far. The series stars Emma Corrin. She was a Princess Diana on the previous season of The Crown. Uh, Britt Marling is one of the show's creators. Harris Dickinson, Alice Braga, Joan Chen, Jermaine Fowler, and Clive Owen. Corrin plays Darby Hart, the lead character. She's a young hacker slash amateur sleuth. Her dad was a coroner and uh, she grew up going to murder scenes and helping him determine what happened. She has an affinity for it and has written a couple of true life crime novels or fictionalized accounts of real stories or something like that. I wasn't entirely sure what they were getting at. But she is of that world and she had a friend years ago named Bill who is now a Banksy style graffiti artist named Fangs and they're about to run into each other for the first time in six years in a very strange place. Darby is invited to a retreat week by an Elon Musk-type tech billionaire played by Clive Owen. He's assembled a bunch of great minds to come to his retreat to get some ideas flowing about how to make the world a better place. There's a filmmaker, a business mogul, a city planner, a real wide array of people, including Darby, and as she quickly finds out, her old friend Bill. This retreat, by the way, is at Clive Owen's new hotel in remote rural Iceland, so they're really in the middle of nowhere, or as the title suggests, at the end of the world. Probably the people in Iceland 
aren't huge fans of that characterization. And then, of course, there is a murder, and Darby has to investigate. It's very Agatha Christie in its secluded location with a big group of potential suspects. And through two episodes, I thought it was really good, maybe a little slow at the beginning of the first episode, but once it got going, I was really into it. The structure of the show kind of has each episode dealing with, obviously, the current story at the retreat, and then we see flashbacks to earlier in Darby's life. The first episode was about her and Bill back in the day, and the second had a lot of her as a little girl learning from her dad, that sort of thing. As always, with shows like this, the success will come from a couple of different things. A, whether there's enough story to warrant the number of episodes. It's, uh, you know, FX Hulu in the U.S., which kind of bodes better in that department than, say, Netflix, which has a lot of bloated series that are always kind of two or three episodes too long. Uh, B, whether the show gets the mix right when it comes to genuine clues and twists compared to meaningless red herrings. Murder mysteries need red herrings, of course, but if there are too many, it's not good and the audience might feel like they're being made to feel like chumps or something. And of course, there's the ending. I mean, these things can really just fall apart in uh, your esteem if the ending sucks. So, oh, it's not over the, all those hurdles yet, obviously, but I'm encouraged by what I've seen so far and hoping the rest of it pans out. A Murder at the End of the World is on Disney+, Plus. like I said. Three episodes out already, new ones every Tuesday until the Tuesday right before Christmas, and I would uh, highly uh, suggest checking it out. And up next, Jeff mentioned Demi Corrin in The Crown. That kind of ties in with what I want to tell you next. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And one of my favorite movies turned 30 this past week. It's Clint Eastwood's A Perfect World. I mean, you got a lot in common, Philip. Both of us as handsome devils. We both like RC Cola. And neither one of us got an old man worth a damn. Eight-year-old Philip Perry has just been taken hostage. Are you going to shoot me? Oh, yeah. By the most dangerous man in West Texas. Put the gun down, old-timer. You couldn't hit me anyway. Probably shoot the boy. Get in the car, Phyllis. This could be Jump. his lucky day. That's my car! Complicating law enforcement attempts to apprehend him, Haynes is believed to have an eight-year-old boy with him as hostage. This is not a penal escape situation. This happens to be a manhunt. A Perfect World stars Kevin Costner, Clint Eastwood, and some kid. It's set in the early 60s, and Costner plays a dangerous con who escapes prison, kidnaps a young boy as a hostage, and goes on the lam in Texas, and Eastwood plays the cop trying to catch him. It's ostensibly a cat-and-mouse kind of chase movie, but it's really much more about kind of the weird father-son relationship that develops between Costner and the kid he's kidnapped. Laura Dern and Bradley Whitfield are also in it. They play part of Eastwood's posse. This was probably the first Clint Eastwood movie I saw in theaters, and it was over the holidays in 93, it was, we were visiting relatives in the U.S. and had nothing to do. It was just something we ended up doing and turned out to be pretty good. I thought the movie was brilliant. I remember being very affected by it. There's some kind of tragedy at the end of the movie. And for years, I would say it was the only Kevin Costner movie I enjoyed. Um, now I like a lot of his movies, but I had a real Costner aversion for a long time. And like almost all Clint Eastwood movies, there's nothing particularly flashy or dazzling about the filmmaking. Just a solid story, well told, with some great performances. And while we get some really heartfelt stuff with Costner and the kid, the Eastwood side of the equation is mostly comic relief. He's uh, commandeered the governor's fancy uh, trailer that he's been using for an election campaign as a mobile headquarters, and Eastwood gets to be grumpy about things. He's good at it. Clint, one of my faves, both in front of and behind the camera. I think A Perfect World is definitely in my Clint Eastwood top ten. It doesn't look like it's streaming anywhere right now, but you can rent it for 5 bucks, which is well worth it. Just wanted to bring that up because uh, 30th anniversary, one of my favorite 
for movies. 93 was a banner year for films, and A Perfect World was among them. And finally, I just wanted to tell you that I mentioned at the top of the, sh- top of the show that I 2020, I sort of bought in hard on this particular show, and I haven't watched it since. I started watching The Crown again, the first four episodes of the sixth and final season of the show about the royal family debuted on November 16th, and the final two episodes of the series will air on December 14th. So I saw that that finale was coming up, and I thought, why not? It's time to get back into it. And I don't know why I never got around to watching season five when it came out in November 2022, because like I said, in 2020, I hadn't watched an episode of the series, but there was so much buzz in the lead up to season four because they were bringing Princess Diana into the show. So I watched it all, and I loved it. So it's been three years since I've seen The Crown, and I thought it's finally time this week to get into season five. In light of the events of the last 12 months, perhaps I have more to reflect on than most. The royal family is in genuine crisis. Have royal scandals damaged the country's reputation? The House of Windsor should be binding the nation together, setting an example of idealized family life. It's a situation that cannot help but affect the stability of the country. So you might remember that when the show came out in November of 2022, it took some heat because the Queen had just died in September of 2022. And this show does not always cast a particularly kind light on the royal family. But it's a pretty cool format with what they've done with this series. The first two seasons is one cast, and then seasons three and four, an entirely new cast to reflect the changing ages of the characters quote-unquote, and then for seasons five and six, once again, it's a different cast, and it's excellent. We've got Imelda Staunton this time, who is playing the uh, the queen, and we have Jonathan Price as Prince Philip, Leslie Manville as Princess Margaret, Dominic West as Prince Charles, Elizabeth Debicki as Princess Diana, Johnny Lee Miller plays the Prime Minister, so that's pretty cool. So yeah, the cast is excellent, and I think that's... Like, this show, this season got uh, not as great reviews as its four predecessors, and it looks like season six so far is getting bad reviews, but the acting in this show is amazing. The production value, the scenery, the sets, they are fantastic. So, yeah, it's set in the 90s when the Diana Charles media war was starting. Pretty cool. I'm looking forward to seeing the rest. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.